Today's reading is from Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. That's on page 779 of the Black Bibles. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is God's word. Good morning again. I'm Ryan Phelps. I serve here as lead pastor. We have been in a series on the, on the suburbs. It's not a book of the Bible. It's a thing. It's a thing that we live in. Sometimes it is a, a, gr- a great good thing to live in the suburbs, but there are things about it that are challenging, not just from a worldly perspective, but from a Christian perspective. It is challenging sometimes to live as a Christ follower in the suburbs. And so we have been covering uh, many different topics community, justification. And this morning we're going to tackle something that is very different, uh, maybe for you, but especially for me. I have talked about uh, diversity uh, in different ways for the last couple of years, but today we are going to jump into the deep end together. So I learned about a weird uh, cultural thing this week, a really weird cultural thing, Portuguese bullfighting. Ever heard of Portuguese bullfighting? Of course, we've heard of Spanish bullfighting, right? We, we know what that is. It's the, the guy. It's kind of scary and weird and a, and a, and a little bit awful where the, the guy stands in there with a the cape and, and a ring and a bull charges him and he slowly kills it. It's very sad. I don't understand it really. Portuguese bullfighting, on the other hand, is, is different. Their intention is not to kill the bull. It's to subdue it. It's to subdue it. And so what happens is that eight guys enter into this ring with nothing between them, no weapons, no no capes, no nothing, just the eight guys and this bull. And then what happens is there's this one guy who walks out in front of the other guys and he puts on this funny-looking hat and the second the bull charges him, he then charges the bull. And the whole point is for him to run at the bull so fast and just right that he jumps in between the horns of the bull, covering its face, and then the rest of the guys jump in on top of the bull, subduing it. And I'm going to show you a picture. See that? That's pretty crazy. I think actually what's the craziest is that there's no one in the stands. You see that picture? It's like, what are they doing it for? No one's even watching them. There's the, there's, the funny hat. there's the funny hat. I don't have a funny hat for you this morning. Um, I do feel, though, like my job is to jump in between a bull's head this morning, in between some horns, because I have the task of trying to address an incredibly charged, difficult complex subject, and an incredibly important one, a gospel one, diversity. 
cultural, racial, ethnic diversity. Yes, out in the world, in the church, but in our, in our church, in Grace Point Community Church. And if you have noticed, we do not do this so well. It is difficult. Churches in the, in the suburbs struggle with this. Ross Lester is a pastor in South Africa, and he writes about this. He says, I know that South Africa has this problem of diversity amplified because segregated spatial planning was official government policy as recently as 23 years ago. But even as a South African, I find suburban spaces in other parts of the world hugely homogeneous. So the same. We all gather together and we look the same. Churches, he says, have to break the mold on this. If there is an area in the world where we can actually be trendsetters, it is this one. Gosh, but it takes boldness, humility, repentance, and the willingness to fail. But we must strive. The price of suburban churches simply accepting the standards of their own geographical homogeny is high. Why would he say that? Why would he say that the cost of our homogeny, of sticking with each other, being with only people that look like us, why is the cost of that high? Well, the big giant answer from the Bible is that that is not the heavenly standard. That is not the cosmic goal and standard. The true standard we know is given by God, and that standard is the beautiful and loving ethnic, racial, and cultural diversity across the land, across all peoples, in the church, throughout the world. All people come together in diversity for unity. And the reason that we know this is because this is what the church, the people of God, what this is going to look like in the future in heaven. And so Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you are ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is an unbelievable picture. A beautiful picture of the church united together, all peoples, races, languages, tongues. The diverse people of Christ united in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His blood now is our blood. And if that's true, then we are blood brothers and sisters with each other. Blood unites us. Blood unites us. Ken Witzma is a, a pastor in Oregon. He's an author. He writes this. He says, our end is radical horizontal diversity reflecting the beauty of God's image and the variety of his creativity. We are destined to sing shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters, beholding not a divisive hierarchy of worth, but the glory of the one who created and unifies us. That is the goal. That is a wonderful, beautiful goal. I think that we could all say that we want that. And yet we know today that it is easier said than done. It is easier said than done to make that heavenly reality our reality today. Why is that? Why is that? Well, first, because the suburbs are generally homogenous, right? That's what Ross Lester says. 
We are like each other in the suburbs. It's just how, how it happens. We gather together in groups. It's very normal. Very normal for us to gather with people who look like each other. And so, on the one hand, that's just a physical problem. We are where we are. We live where we live. We do ministry. We reach out to people. We try to bless people where they live. That's a good thing. That's an okay thing. So there's just the physical reality of the, of the thing. But, it, but it's also something that I think is actually changing. I think that that homogeny is just going away. Slowly and surely, by the grace of God, people are coming together and living together. People who are different ethnicities and races, even languages. And the place where I live, Haverhill, increasingly diverse. It is so, it makes me so happy that my children are growing up next to kids who are not like them. That was not my upbringing. Their upbringing is very different from mine. I think that's going to change over time. I think that we are going to have to come together at some point. But here's the second reason why this is hard, why diversity inside the church is hard, and it's likely something that you feel today. We are not just physically divided, but it seems as though we are spiritually divided. What has become abundantly clear in the last few years is that there remains a hard and emotionally tense divide between races and cultures and ethnicities, mistrust, fear, entrenchment, and even rage. We know we studied this a couple of weeks ago that Jesus came to break down the dividing wall of hostility, not just between us and him. He did that for sure, but it was also intended to break down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, the apostle said. We are still trying to do that. And yet in our institutions, in our cities, in NFL stadiums, on Facebook, and even inside of our churches, this wall remains. I know you feel that in different ways, from different perspectives, and I know how painful it is. And so what stands between our churches and the unity that is so amazingly, astoundingly displayed in Revelation 5 will mean that we will have to do really hard work, and we will need the gospel of free grace. We will need the power of God to work in our lives to do something that is so difficult, reconciliation to be truly united with the other peoples of the world, let alone the people in our communities, will take the incredibly difficult work of reconciliation. To unite with our black and Indian and Latino and Asian and Hispanic and Native American neighbors will require deep reconciliation. Now, I say that after a lot of years of not knowing. Not knowing that it was a problem. In truth, you know what? I didn't want to believe it was a problem. I didn't want to believe that the things that I was seeing in front of me, the elections and the politics and the police standoffs, was a problem. And I especially did not want to think that it could be a problem inside our own church, inside our family, even inside our own hearts. I thought that things are good now. We're fine. We're removed from the awful years of the past of American history. Everything is good now, but it is very clear that we are not united. 
And so to become the church reflected in Revelation 5 and 7 and Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4 will take work, tremendous work, the work of learning, forgiving, repenting, listening, sacrificing, and doing justice. And so we are going to jump in the middle of the bull and tackle it today. And I say that because I'm not going to do this alone. I cannot do this alone. We must do this together. There is too much pent-up frustration and fear and confusion, and we must talk about it together, no matter how harrowing it is. But I know you as a people. I know that you want this. And it's because you want what Jesus wants. You want Jesus and everything that he has for us. And so we will try to tackle it for the, at least this morning, together, united, seeking reconciled, peaceful, joyful, ethnic unity and diversity. And we were going to do it with one simple word today, unpacking one simple word, humility. Humility. To get there, let's pray together first. God, thank you for your abundant mercies. We know that we are saved. We know that though we were sinners, on the path to true justice, the true justice of everlasting punishment, yet you sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. We are far worse than we ever could believe, and yet we know today as you are lifting our heads up that we are far more loved than we could ever believe, than we could even hope for. I pray that this morning that that guides us, that those thoughts guide us into humility. And we need it this morning. This is a difficult issue. This is a complex issue. This is an issue that brings with, mis that brings with a distrust, mistrust, frustration, anger. And yet we know that you are the God who has made peace with us. And if you can make peace with us, there is hope for us and our brothers and sisters. Help us to walk down that path a little bit today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in Micah 6, Micah 6, 6. With what shall I come before the Lord, he says, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, with the Lord? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. Okay, stop there. The ESV Bible says that this is the question that everyone has to ask, the study Bible. Everyone must ask themselves, what must I bring before the Lord as a bought believer in the blood of Christ, as one who now loves Him and serves Him and wants to honor Him? What do I bring before Him? What will you bring before Him? Well, his answer is pretty interesting. He says it is not offerings. It is not the offering, the physical offering, the burnt offerings, the calves a year old, the thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, and not even your firstborn. Nothing will do except this justice, kindness, and mercy. Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? It sounds like a good sermon right there, right? 
justice, kindness, humility. We could take each of those. But what you have to understand is those are interconnected. Those are interwoven. You cannot have one without the other. If you pull on the thread of justice or kindness or humility, the whole thing will come undone. To love God, to love your neighbor, you must seek all three simultaneously, justice, kindness, and humility. And yet, I do want to say something. I do think that we need to start somewhere today. We need to start somewhere. We need to start, I think, with humility, that last one. Walk humbly with your God, if you do not have complete poverty of spirit, if you do not know who you are before the Lord, you will approach issues of racial and ethnic reconciliation with pride. You will do it with pride. And that pride will lead to fear and distrust and anger. And there will be no diversity and there will be no unity. What does it look like then to walk with the Lord in humility? I like to think of what it would be like to walk around the mall with Shaquille O'Neal. You know Shaquille O'Neal, the basketball player? He is seven foot one and like 350 pounds. He's probably a lot more than that actually today. I'm like 5'11", 170 pounds. Walking around with him, I would always know who I was. My place would be weakness, smallness. I would always know who I was next to him. Not strong, not tall, not big. And he is a basketball player. How about when you are walking with God? Fear, weakness, humility. We, the finite, limited humans, next to the Lord of hosts, the creator of heaven, the omnipotent king and merciful and gracious God, to walk with him is to be reminded that we truly are nothing compared to him. You remember that scene where Jesus is in the boat with the fishermen and he says, throw your, 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 your net in one more time. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're not a fisherman, you're a carpenter. And they do, and they bring all those fish in. What happens to Peter? He throws himself at Jesus' feet in absolute fear. And yet that is, that is what he asks of us. What do we bring to him? It's not our offering. It's not our good works. It's not our kids. It is our humility. And I say this morning that for the, sake and kind, for the sake of kindness and justice for our neighbors, for our brothers and sisters, we must first be humble. We must first be humbled. I think that humility is the only proper, healthy, and wise way to approach these difficult, difficult issues. The only way to think about and process things like Kneeling before the flag and police shootings and really difficult elections is to begin in humility. The only way to come together finally and love our black and Hispanic and Asian and Indian and African and Latino and Middle Eastern brothers and sisters is to be, is to be humbled, to begin with the posture, the mindset I know who I am before the Lord, and I am nothing apart. I'm, I'm nothing apart from Him. Who am I to bring my pride? Who am I to bring my anger? I am ready to listen and to learn.
Now, before we go on, I have to confess that I learned this lesson the hard way. I do not usually like to share too much of my personal life. You need to see the Lord, not me. But I think you need to hear this this morning. Humility on this issue did not come easily for me. I was seven, seven years old when I first learned about Jim Crow. I'll never forget my teacher talking about white drinking fountains and colored drinking fountains. Did not understand it. I was 10 when I grasped that this country was built in large part on the enslaved backs of African men and women who had been forcibly ripped from their homes and families. When I was 12, I felt for the first time what it was like to be a racial minority. My family and I, we traveled into the city, into the city of Seattle, and we went to this food festival called the Bite of Seattle. Now, I don't know why, but that day must have been a special day for the black community because we were the only white people there. And I remember feeling totally out of place. I remember feeling fear. I remember feeling like I got to get out of here. I went to high school, this little farming community high school where we had one black student. He turned out to be the best athlete, not only in our town, but literally in the state. On, by his efforts alone, he won the state, track, the, the, the state track competition for our whole school. He went on to go to the Olympics. I mentioned that irony often, that the black athlete was the best athlete. I was in college when I first took a class, at least when I could wake up for it. It was called African American History. I don't know why I picked it. I remember seeing a video clip. The teacher, the professor, showed a video clip of Amos and Andy. Remember Amos and Andy? This comedy duo that would dress up in blackface. And I remember looking at that going, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. When I got married, I worked at a grocery store right as I was working, through, working my way through college, this grocery store called Winn-Dixie in Florida, and there was this guy that I worked next to, beautiful, amazing guy. He was a black guy, and I remember him talking to me about the race issue, and he said something to me that was baffling to me. I did not understand it. He says, you know what? I don't think that you, a white guy, will ever understand what it is like for us. Why would he say that? I remember thinking to myself, I know what it's like to struggle. When I was in my late 20s, I was with a relative of mine, and this person happened to shake a black, a person's hand who was black. And as they walked away, as they turned away, they whispered, I need to go wash the black off of me. I had never in my life heard anything like that. At the time, I think I chalked it up to old age. That was in the past. That's in the past. When I was 33 or 34, I was in Andover, of all places, pushing my kids across the street. It was a festival downtown. And this car came, and he kind of took us out of turn, and he, and he was crossing when I had the right-of-way. I was just walking with my kids with a stroller. And I saw him do that, and I can get a little aggressive and so instead of speeding up, I slowed way down as he's trying to cross. And then I passed by, and as he drove past, someone in the car rolled down their window and yelled from the inside, speed up, son, 
you walk like a N-word. When I was 36, I took over this church and Almost immediately, there was the sweetest black couple began attending our church. And I came up to them on the first day and I said, I was honestly amazed and happy, but now I know that I was really dumb and insensitive. And I said, why would you want to come to this church? The first 36 years of my life, I approached racism and diversity. Like many white people do, I suspect, distantly, ignorantly but also with pride, with pride. And then some things started to happen. These things out there in the world started to happen. Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and protests and Black Lives Matter and more shootings. And then in my life, conversations with friends, with black friends, with Latino friends. Open sharing inside of my theological community showing that maybe this is, a, this is a deeper, worse issue than I realized. And then picking up books, reading books I'd never re- read before, and listening to that sweet black family in our congregation describe their experience in America. And a new picture was being painted for me in my mind and my soul. A new reality was coming into my view. Yes, things are better, but they are far from good. Yes, things are better, but there remains a deep racial an ethnic divide. And I tried to approach it at that point. I tried to understand it. And I wish that I could say that I approached it with humility. I wish that I could say that I got humble and started learning and started fighting for diversity. But the issue I realized very quickly was frustratingly complex. And I was boxed in, at least I felt boxed in, by these new ideas, ideas that I did not want to believe. Ideas like white privilege. Ideas like the notion that blacks in America still have a different experience than whites do. I was put off and angry at people on Facebook and Twitter. I felt they were saying really divisive, hurtful, sinful things. Finally, the Lord drove me to my knees. I was frustrated enough. I was sad enough. And I cried out to him. Do you know what he said to me? It was not audible, but it was clear, resounding in my heart. What are you so afraid to lose in this? Be humbled. Be humbled before me. Maybe that is where you need to go. Maybe this morning you need to be humbled. That is where I needed to And that is where I believe our church must go first, is into humility. If we are going to reach our goal of radical and loving diversity, we must begin with humility. John Piper says this, Imagine what race relations and racial controversies would look like if the participants were all dead to pride and deeply humble before God and each other. Amen and amen. So this morning, I want to be very simple. This is going to be a multiple-part series now. I don't know if we'll do kindness and justice next week, but we're at least going to hit humility today, humility by itself. And so I want to give you five reasons why humility is vital to this thing, this thing that we are trying to do. The first one is this. Humility leads us to learn. Humility leads us to learn. So if I've learned anything since tackling this issue is that I do not know anything. I do not know 
enough. And I have studied a lot. I've read 30 books, over 75 articles. I've had numerous conversations with minority brothers and sisters, and I feel like I'm still just scratching the surface. Every time I try to open my mouth, I say something stupid. I think that we need to admit that the history, the psychology, the sociology of race and race and racism in America is so much bigger and deeper and more entrenched than any of us realize. I think that it was arrogant of me to think that 53 years of moderately better equality could erase the effects of 345 years of chattel slavery and segregation. Here is the chart that made me weep this week. 1619, the beginning of chattel slavery in America. Ended, of course, in 1865, and we can put that in heavy quotes, ended. And then segregation for another 99 years. That little tiny blue box over there is where we have been since then. The history of racism and white supremacy and inequality does not just go away overnight. And so I want our humility to lead us to learn. I want it to lead us to learn. Lead up the, take up the task of learning again, maybe the things that we picked up in school when we were kids, and learning afresh, learning more deeply. We are too apt, too apt to make quick determinations, take sides, pronounce our feelings on Facebook. Humility ultimately should make us slow to speak, quick to listen, and eager to learn. Two, humility leads us to serve, to see, excuse me, and love. Humility leads us to see and love. So what does pride do? Pride stirs up lots of emotions in our heart, right? Anger, apathy, even violence. But I think that maybe the most harmful thing about pride is that it blinds us. It blinds us from truly seeing those whom we are in conflict with and loving them for who they are. We are so protective of ourselves. We protect our egos. And we will stop at nothing to protect our egos. And so what happens is that we get blinded and we stop seeing the person across the way for who they are as human, as beautiful creatures made in God's image. We don't see them as people with histories and children and jobs and sins and difficulties. We will never come together unless we can see, truly see the other person on the other side. And humility, friends, is the only path to that. And I say that because when we are humble, ultimately we do not care about our own needs and wants. Friends, we have nothing to fear, nothing to protect. And when those scales fall from our eyes, when the pride scales fall from our eyes, we will see them for who they are and we will love them. We will love them. Humility leads to bearing up. Humility leads to bear up. So if anything is clear is that, that um, tensions are high and words are spoken constantly, sins are committed. We must understand that we are going to have to bear up under the fallenness of humanity and the sin of the world. If we are going to truly enter into this and try to reconcile with others, we cannot get offended at the, at the drop of a hat. We cannot let the sin of another person saying something about us, let the conversation be put 
away. We must agree and understand that we will be sinned against. We will be taken out of context, judged unfairly. We will unfairly maybe even be called racists. We may even be told that the color of our skin makes us guilty. And we will be told worse things than these and even assumed about us worse things than these. Now, the normal response to stuff like that, that kind of fallenness and sin is what? It's fight or flight. I'm going to fight or I will run away. Usually the fighting happens on Facebook, sometimes with your grandma. Shouldn't be. Or we run away and hide far away as possible. What does humility do? Humility bears up underneath it. Humility says that we do not have anything to prove or lose, and so we don't flip out. We say we are still here. We are listening, and we are ready to love and to reconcile. For humility leads to repentance. Humility leads to repentance. I didn't know where to put this one in the order, but it's here. So I'm going to say a statement that I hope you do not find radical. We all have in our hearts the seeds of, of the sin of racism. We all have the seeds of the sin of racism inside of us. In other words, maybe, just maybe, some of the things that are being said about us are true. There's this place in the book of Exodus. After the Egyptians had oppressed the people and God saved the Israelites out of Egypt. And God says to them, do not oppress and enslave anyone in your midst. Do not oppress other peoples and force their labor, he says. Now just think about that. God had just freed the Israelites from the misery of decades of forced labor, awful labor. So why in the world would God need to, right as they are out of Egypt, look at them and say, do not enslave anyone, do not force labor on anyone? Would it not be enough that they just went through that, that they just experienced that? God's answer should not surprise us. It is no, it is not enough, because the heart is a fallen heart. The human heart is capable of every sin and evil apart from God's working in our lives and His grace by the Holy Spirit. The human heart is yet capable of things we cannot imagine. And so we must admit, I know this is hard, but we must admit that even we are capable of the sin of racism and only humility can lead you there. Friends, we have to be so careful with this because the sin of racism is the perfect cover-up for the fallen heart. Friends, we are curved inwards. The Latin is incurvatus, in se. We are curved inwards. We are self-effacing. We are self-loving. It would make perfect sense that we would retreat either to protect our race to the exclusion of others, or worse, malign others, other races directly or indirectly to protect ourselves. Homogeny is ultimately about power. It is about power. We feel powerful when we are connected with those who look like us. We feel powerful when we are protected by the color of our skin. Now, here's another confession. I can't believe I'm confessing this. When I was 20, a news report came out. I don't know if it's changed, but at least at the time it had come out 
And it said that by 2030 or 2040, the white race would no longer be the majority race in America. And do you know what I felt? I remember this like it was yesterday. I felt fear. I felt fear. My heart sprung up this pride that said, I do not want to be in a world where we are not the most powerful race. I pray that that sentiment did not seep out into my interactions with my brothers and sisters. The point of our humility is that we cannot trust our own power and goodness. We cannot trust it. It cannot be the things that we stand on. Racism exists deep inside the heart. And so what does the humble heart say? The humble heart says, I know the depth of my sin. The cross of Christ taught me that I am far worse than I realize. I'm more prideful than I know. And so I must take stock of my thoughts, my words, my actions. Before I go plucking the sin, the the speck sin out of my brother's eye, I must see the log in my own. Now I want to be careful. I want to be careful here. I don't know what's in your heart. I don't even really know what's in mine. I am not calling us all racist this morning. But friends, in our humility, it should not surprise us if we have repenting to do. If we have repenting to do. Last point this morning. Humility leads to trust. Humility leads to trust. So I went out to a conference last April and I sat in on a panel of um, uh, two black guys and three white guys and they were discussing this issue inside the church. At one point, the moderator, he was a white guy, and he asked, why does this issue feel like it is not getting better but worse? Even inside the church, it does not feel like it's getting better but feels like it's getting worse. And one of the black guys, he spoke up, really wise guy, really amazing guy. He said, you know, I think it is like a married couple. I think it's like a married couple who have been living in the same house but have not been speaking for a very long time. And then when they come together, when they try to reconcile, all the problems that plagued them come back to the surface. All the things that they were irreconciled over come back to haunt them. The reason he said that things are so bad, and especially in the church, is because we're finally talking. We are finally listening. Now that is a harrowing thing, but it is a hopeful thing. So how do we as a church, as a people, as neighbors, how do we approach this conversation? Friends, it is humility. Humility ultimately, I think, will lead to trust. It will lead to trust. To lead with humility is in conflict is counterintuitive. To lead with humility when we are being attacked is counterintuitive and hard. And yet it is always the best path. Why? Because it disarms. It neutralizes. It calms. No one can be mad at another person for long if they are simply being humble. If they are self-protecting, of course, we can always fight. But one person says, I'm sorry. And the other person is humble at the same time. How would the world look? How would our church look? If more of us led humbly with these words, I am sorry. 
I am sorry for how you've been treated. I am sorry for your experience. I am sorry that I have not seen it before. I am sorry that I have not tried to understand and help. I am sorry where I have contributed. That seems like a good foundation. Friends, what does the Lord require? We are always asking ourselves that question. It is not our righteous works. It is not our goodness and Goodness, it is definitely not our pride. Micah says, it is your humility. And friends, can I tell you what? That is where you are going to be most safe and most secure. There is literally nothing to lose in approaching this issue, all of these issues with humility. We are totally safe to admit our sins, our shortcomings, our ignorance, our weaknesses. We are totally safe to, have, to be accused of things that we did not do or maybe did do. We are safe there because when we walk with God in humility, that does not just mean that we are humbled by His presence. It also means that He is there covering us. Even in our weakness and frailty and sin, yet God remains our protector and defender. Just think of that. God covers us in our humility because he did not cover Jesus in his. Jesus was totally exposed on the cross, naked out in the open, arms and feet nailed wide, ashamed, unprotected, and humble, perfectly humble for us. Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Friends, we are just starting this conversation as a church. Honestly, we, we want to become a church that is diverse, reconciled with all those who might come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I want for you is just to be thinking about this, just to be praying about this this week. Like I said, we are not going to do this one week. At least one more week, we're going to cover this, tackle this together. Be prayerful, and I pray that you would be hopeful also. We do not know what part we have to play in this. I'm excited, though. I'm excited because we have an amazing goal, an extraordinary goal, the glory of God reflected in the diversity and unity of his people. Is that something we can do together humbly? I hope so. Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy in Christ. I know this was heavy this morning. We should not be afraid to look. We should not be afraid to see, to you should not be afraid to know because we know that you see all things and you long for all peoples to be reconciled and to have a relationship with you and to come into reconciliation and peace and harmony with each other. May we look where you look. As difficult as this is, as, as, this is, as boxed in as we feel, as frustrated as we may be, God, humble us as you give us your eyes. Humble us as you give us your heart. God, I look forward to the future of this church, whether or not I will be here for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. I look forward into the future and I see something beautiful. All peoples come together under the banner of the glory of yourself and the gospel to the praise of Jesus Christ. 
led by the glorious spirit. I pray that as our vision together. In Jesus' name, amen.